Welcome to Adventure Rider Radio Raw, a roundtable spinoff from Adventure Rider Radio that we do each month about motorcycle travel. And on this episode of Raw, things get a little heated when we start talking about dealing with cultural differences when you're on a trip. Not everyone sees eye to eye on this. Also, tires. Which tires works best for these riders for long distance and the usual rabbit holes that we get when we get this group together. All this and more coming up on today's episode. But before we get going, I want to give a shout out to some people that helped this show incredibly this past month with support of $50 or more. We really appreciate it. Chip LaPointe, thank you. Eric Iverson, thank you. Matthew Drastel, I hope I got that right. You said Rascal Drastel. I mean, I'm pretty close there, I think. Mark Plank, William Smith, thank you all very much. And hey, if you'd like to get your name on the show here, support of $50 or more, get your name on the show. But we would love your monthly support on our patron account by being one of our supporters there. Drop by our website, adventureriderradio.com, and click on support. Well, now here we go. ARR Raw for November 2018. Okay, I'm ready to go. You guys ready to go? Yep. Yeah, yeah. Okay. From the Canoe West Media Studio on the shores of Vancouver Island, British Columbia, Canada, it is November 2018, and welcome to Adventure Rider Radio Raw, roundtable discussions about motorcycles, travel, and anything else that crosses our mind, completely unscripted, raw, and personal. My name is Jim Martin, and today at the virtual roundtable afforded through the magic of the internet, I am joined by my esteemed regular Overland co-host, starting with Graham Field in Bulgaria. Graham, good to get you back. Oh. You know, I still get a little bit of butterflies in my tummy. We've been doing this three years now. When you do that live from the shores of wherever you are, and, I, and then I get little butterflies, think, oh, here we go, here we go, here we go. <laughs> That's because you're trying to act sober. <laughs> it's seven o'clock in the morning. I'm not acting sober. <laughs> you're, you're not in your home, though, right now. No, I'm in the shed. You're I'm in the shed. shed because I've got a house full of people, so um, it's much easier to be up here and um, and be undisturbed and uninhibited. So describe your shed. What's around you? Inside the shed? Yeah. Uh, well, inside, uh, there's a big tool board with all my tools on. Behind that, there's shelves with cleaning products and lubrication products and all that stuff. Uh, pillar drill, beautiful stone wall. I've got a log burner in the corner, a stone sink on the next wall. And what I'm looking at now, I've got this stunning view of the valley, It's which is why not a lot gets down the shed, because I can just sit here. This time of year, the sun sets uh, right opposite, and I just look down the valley at the moment because there's a frosty dawn just happening, and so there's low cloud, and you can just see the, the peaks of the bare trees above the low cloud on the top of the hill. So it's a beautiful, beautiful view. And if I sit up out in the chair, I can just see some burnt rubber on the patio. <laughs> The burnt rubber from your your donut with your bike. But, you you know, you must spend more time looking at that window than anywhere else. Because when I asked you to describe what's around you, you actually had to turn around and look to see what was around you. I did. I did. Um, Well, you know, you you know. I mean, if I came in as somewhere, something was not in the place where it's supposed to. I was like, okay, who's been in here? You know where everything is. But I I don't have to look around to, uh, to describe it. Yeah, and then I've got recently the, the mat in the lounge was so full of burns from the log burner, I took it out. So now the mat is sitting in the shed. So I've got a nice brown furry mat with the Thruxton sitting on it. So it looks, it doesn't really look like a shed. It looks like some showroom, really. It doesn't look like the sort of things where stuff happens. But it's not really <laughs> a shed. It's a shop, though, right? I guess you'd call it a shop in, in North America. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's, what, that's what you, so it's just terminology. Nomenclature. 
Okay, well, let's zip over from you over to Sam Manicom. Sam, you are, I think you're you're at home in the UK, are you? I am, yes, just for a change. And I'll tell you what, it's um, just gone quarter past five in the morning here, and I have got no view, unlike Lucky Graham Fields, because it's pitch black outside. Mm, it's that time of year. But, what, what, how do you stand the winter, you know, when, when you get into the dark times when it comes to riding? Because you ride year-round, that's your transportation. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Libby, technically, is um, still my only means of transport, unless we're counting my bicycle. Um, although that will change soon, but more on another show with that. Um, and yeah, so she gets ridden year round, poor old girl. Um, I was working round her the other day with some ACF 50 and just um, giving her a good clean up. She was a bit shocked, actually. I haven't cleaned her properly for quite a long time. Um, she wears mud like a badge of honour, I think. She probably doesn't think it's very honourable, though. But yeah, so yeah, ride all the, all the year round. It's um, it's good fun. What do you do for winter riding? Do you have, uh, you know, the handlebar muffs on and, and heated grips and things like that? Um, without doubt, heated grips. And I mean, Birgit and I did the big trip without heated grips. I didn't even know the things existed. Um, and my God, when I found them, I thought, right, that's it. I'm never going to have a motorcycle again without heated grips. Don't they make a difference? But we had... Um, um, handlebar muffs made out of Alaskan fishermen's trousers, um, as we were, which we had made, funnily enough, in um, um, in uh, North America. We we made those in um, Anacortes, which is just over the way from you, isn't it? Uh, it's interesting. I, I didn't know they used their old underwear for that sort of thing. Fisherman's trousers. Oh, I should say fisherman's pants. Really, oh, yeah. shouldn't I? <laughs> Hang on a minute. That's even more confusing now. <laughs> so, well, why no, we would you a... make handlebar? Mu- I think I'm, I'm. Maybe I'm going down somewhere I don't want to go. But <laughs> <laughs> why? Why would you use someone's old pants to to make your? I mean, you you've got your hands stuffed in where their butt used to go. Gosh, you conjure up some 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 really good images, Jim. This is this is worrying. Um, now the story behind this was that um, we were in um, Canada and um, Washington State in the winter, and um, we didn't have a huge amount of money. You know, we were travelling on a very tight budget, um, and we didn't know about heated grips, and we didn't know about heated jackets, those sorts of things. And quite honestly, we were just freezing. We had a friend who had been a fisherman on one of the trawlers um, up off the coast of Alaska. And they wear these fantastic orange dungaree um, um, over trousers. And these things are really heavy duty. And he wasn't going to go fishing again. And he had these. And he said, well, I tell you what, why don't you do something with these? And um, we were staying with some friends who... um, Sue used to make um, leather chaps and saddlebags and all of that sort of stuff. So she had all the sewing machinery. And in her shop, um, Birgit sat down and used a, a plan that I'd drawn on bits of paper um, as, you know, like a sewing plan. She made me some handlebar muffs. Um, and they're great. They're fantastic because, of course, being orange, they show up nice and bright um, when the weather's really gloomy. And I've still got them and I still use them. Um, so yeah, a nice souvenir from the trip. You know, things that you pick up on a big journey that, that, that you have to make to solve problems and so on, they're often the best souvenirs, aren't they? I really like things that are old, 
I mean, and I'm not talking antiques. I, I like things that are well worn. I've got a um, an audio bag that's actually converted from a camera bag that we had way, way many years ago when we were in publishing. And um, I used to have all my camera gear in it. And I was just looking at it tonight. I mean, it's kind of falling apart a little bit. Most people would probably throw it out and say, oh, it's time to get a new one. You know, the threads are coming out. But there's something about the character, you know, with mm-hmm. with uh, with something that's old. I, I, I like things. The more they hang around, the more I like them. Every ding and scrape tells a story, doesn't it? Yeah. Oh, yeah, that little tear. Do you remember when? And so the memories start rolling out, don't they? Um, when we got back to the UK, um, I, I made a big mistake. And that was I stripped Libby down to, um, with a friend to um, the frame with the aim of repowder coating. And what a good thing it was to do that underneath where, you know, all the bits of metal rub and so on. After eight years on the road, there was so much rust tucked in underneath Um you know, those joints and so on. And it was a really good thing. But then I painted Libby's petrol tank and I really regret doing that because every single ding and scrape and so on came from an event on the road and Mm. she'd earned those things and I covered them all over. Almost Um, would have been better to put some uh, clear coat over it. Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the only upside, of course, to this is that um, I've fallen off a few more times and I've got a few more stories collected on this, so that's all right. <laughs> well, also sitting in the sidelines, we have Shirley Hardy Ricks and Brian Ricks way, way over there in Australia, where I think you're going into summer now. Yeah, we're going into summer. I'm sorry, I thought you'd forgotten about us. I did, actually. And then I just looked up on my screen and I saw your name. I thought, oh, I yeah. forgot about the Rixes. I couldn't bring them in here. Yeah, that'd be That's right. Okay. Just because we're down under, well, yeah, yeah it's nice and, you know, it's, it's humid today. Been swimming yesterday, just taking our time. I'm like an expectant father waiting for my motorcycle to come back from Europe. So uh, uh, poor old Big Red's uh, still on the high seas and hopefully – We'll be here in a couple of weeks. So at the moment, I'm riding around on my old Triumph Sprint, which um, is causing me no – well, put it this way. We all know about Lucas, the Prince of Darkness. I'm pretty (laughs) sure that has infected this uh, Sprint. I went for a ride with a mate the other day and we had a lovely time and we were puttering along and no dramas. I got to his place and took some stuff out of my bike to give to him and it wouldn't go. Uh, it would start, it would stop, then it wouldn't go at all. And in the end, he had to drive me home. I had to get the trailer and bring it back. Stripped back some wires, found three broken wires and still couldn't get it going. So I've got a, a friend who's a bit of a guru with these triumphs. So I took it around to his place and we found another seven broken wires underneath the ignition switch because Ooh. this thing had been sitting out in the um, – in a paddock for about four or five years and things get brittle. And you know where people use those little testers to test wires and all that sort of stuff? That's all very good. But they they create little pinprick holes in insulation and eventually that causes a uh, wear point in the wire. And what I was doing was when I was turning the handlebars, things would just not be connected. So... uh, Finally sorted all that out. So I've been having a bit of fun with the old Triumph while I'm waiting for Big Red to get back. So I can hardly wait to get back on that beautiful old beast and caress it. But I do hang on to old things. I've still got Sherl after 30 years. So so I'm not doing too bad. Did you say you hang on to old? Never mind. I'm not going to go there. (laughs) But I thought you had more bikes. I thought you had like five bikes. 
Well, yes, I do. I, I, I had a K100, which I just uh, moved on yesterday to a friend, uh, yesterday, two days ago, mm-hmm. three days ago. And um, it's a great old bike. I just jumped on that and rode it up to Canberra and back. But he's crossed over to the dark side and gone from a BMW GS and he's gone and bought a Ural sidecar. <laughs> so, um, yeah, he's not your friend yeah. anymore. You guys aren't, aren't going to hang out. <laughs> but what he wanted was a, an older bike, which was on cheaper registration. So, um, and I had, I bought that K100 from my son who ended up with a different bike. So I thought, oh, I'll just shift that. So, um, he's got a pretty good old, uh, Beamer and I'm stuck with the Triumph. Hmm. But anyway. That's life. Oh, what do we have here? Grant Johnson is popping up on the screen. Better late than never. Good stuff. Well, our um, our topic today is kind of like oil in a way um, because it's tires. Quentin J sent in a question. And he said he thought this might be a, a good question on raw. He's wondering what it, tires everyone is running, brands, the percentage of dirt and road, you know, 60, 40, 40, 20, that sort of thing. Hard sidewalls for longevity or softer sidewalls for grip. He says uh, he knows that it's a topic that will always get folks going, <laughs> usually <laughs> cursing. <laughs> it totally depends yes. on, on where people ride, but he says um, he's sure it will spur conversation. There's no doubt it will. But I thought this was really good because, you know, uh, you guys have done a lot of miles. You do a lot of miles. And I think a lot of people are interested in, in what sort of tires you, you are running. See, the thing is that I know that when when you look around for reviews on tires, on anything for that matter, but let's say let's say specifically tires, you look for reviews. Reviews are so subjective. I mean, somebody will put up there and say, "Oh, this, you know, the tire is absolutely fantastic. You know, um, it's so smooth, it's so wonderful on the highway. I've only had ridden two hundred kilometers on it, but I'll, I'll report back when I do more." Well, that's not a review, you know. So it's nice to talk to people who have had a chance to run all different kinds of tires, try different things, and. And, um, you know, sort of get your opinion in there. We don't have to pick a brand or anything, but just uh, curious what your experience is with it. Um, but the, it's kind of funny that we're talking about this because, Graham, you just tested a tire in your backyard. <laughs> to destruction. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think um, Pirelli Diablo courses are something that anybody's going to consider for a long overland trip. It was strictly for the Thruxton, but I got 6,000 miles out of a rear tire on a bike like that. I think is pretty damn good. And I got two punches. You all heard about the puncture I got on the Serbian border. Well, last week I went back to Serbia again because I love the roads out there. And uh, eight miles from home on a 600-mile trip, I got a puncture again. But Mm. this time, Grant, this time I had a spare inner tube, I had tire levers, I had um, (laughs) everything I needed. Good idea. I found a log at the side of the road, I jacked up the bike, I broke the bead, I replaced the tube, and I got the eight miles back home without having to call anybody, employ anybody, or anything. But Doesn't that that feel good? It did feel good. Well, I don't know. Ask my back. My back might not agree trying to get the, <laughs> a bike that only has a side stand under a log. But uh, uh, no, yeah. it did. I didn't have to call anyone, and it was great to have that independence. Um, uh, but ever that, that, that tie was spent. So um, I thought, I've never done a donut in my life. I thought, I'll see if I can do a donut. I watched some YouTube videos and uh, had a fretful night thinking about it. And the next morning, it was still misty. My girlfriend was going to work. It was still quite early. And I said, can you take a video of me trying to do a donut? And um, it's quite good because the mist 
of of the morning sort of mixed with the smoke of the tire and it's really hard to tell where one started and the other one stopped and uh, yeah then my first donut bouncing off the red limit a sparkling from the threads on the on the inner tire and uh, just like a total teenage hooligan and i was i was chuffed for like two days i was just beaming (laughs) (laughs) and you were were you wearing shorts when you were doing this no, I was at least wearing most of the gear. I didn't have a lid, but I had proper uh, asbestos or, uh, you know, what they call it, the Kevlar line trousers and the bike boots and a, and that. So I was relatively well protected. I thought, well, it's not a huge speed, is it? It's it's um, the, the problem is going to be, you know, coming off at low speed. So I thought bottom half of the body was what needed protecting. Incidentally, on the Thruxton forum, I saw something. You might have heard this before. I thought it was really funny. It said horsepower is the speed you hit the wall at. Talk is how far you take the wall with you. <laughs> <laughs> um, my thoughts on tires, and people always ask me this because I do a, a tire changing seminar and how to do it and talk about tires a lot. As long as you're using a good modern brand, it really doesn't matter which one. I mean, I run Michelins and I love Michelins and I've been very happy with them for many, many years. But it, it doesn't matter that much. They're all good. And it's all differences of degree. And this year, somebody, X has a new tire out. And y has another tire out six months later and so forth. What's more important, I think, is, is to choose the tire that's going to do the job for you. Because it's too easy for people to buy um, an adventure bike. And BMW tells us that something like 80% of GSs never hit the, the dirt. Why are you running adventure tires? Because they're cool and they look chunky and they're cool. I mean, really, that's the only reason. But if you run straight street tires, you'll get better life. I'm running straight street tires on my GS right now. They're fine. The Michelin Anarchies. Depends on your use, doesn't it? I mean, it seems when you get into the percentages, you know, that you see a tire mark 60-40. So let's say that they're 60% dirt and 40% street. What does that really tell you? It doesn't tell you anything, really. What it tells you me. It's crap at both. What it tells exactly. That's what I was going to say. Or your 50-50 tire that people always seem to want to go for. It just tells you that it's 50% as good on-road as a road tire and 50% as good off-road as an off-road tire. So basically, it's good at nothing. And it's well, I wouldn't disagree with that. But if, if you're an actual rider who really does do 40 or 50% off-road, okay, an off-road tire... The 50-50 is not a bad compromise, but always remember that it's a compromise. It's, as you just said, it's 50% as good. So smart guys, and those, on, to be honest, with a little extra money, buy another set of wheels. Swap wheels. It's way God, what a nice idea, but Grant, you need to have a shop for that, and some of us don't have it and don't have the storage space. i just got this yes. image of me with one of those sort of um, Dutch house um, um you know, spars sticking out of the front of our place with my tire, my wheel collection <laughs> hanging off it. I'm sure my neighbors would love me. I mean, yeah, I, I ride with, with Avon Trek riders and they're 50-50s and I like that because, um, yes, most of the roads that I do um, are asphalt. But when I get off the asphalt, I want something that's going to give me um, a better advantage than an ordinary, you know, road tire. Um, and 50-50, I, I just fell in love with these on the trip that we've just been doing in Portugal. Um, the back tire now has 6,000 miles on it and it's, um, uh, it's still not half worn. And of course that's traveling in all sorts of road conditions, but 
I didn't try them in mud, so I don't know what they what they're going to be like. But on the gravel and um, the looser sand and so on, they were absolutely brilliant. And so I like that combination. But I I also hear what you say about knobblies. I see um, novice riders get on a bike with knobblies and scare themselves silly because they're absolutely shocked by the lack of grip when they're traveling on 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 asphalt in, yeah. in comparison to, to road tires. And I always think, you know. At least go for a 60-40 if you're going to be on an adventure bike. Um, and if you've got a trip coming up that's going to be mostly on the dirt um, or the mud, you know, then yes, of course, change your tyres for that then. Now, one of the questions that I get asked quite a lot is, you know, people who are setting off on a big trip and they say, so what tyre should I wear? Now, bear, use. Now, bear in mind that, you know, I'm talking about um, coming from England. And I say to them, well, look, where are you going? Oh, I'm going to Africa. Okay, well, in that case, how much tread have you got left on the tyres you've got on the bike? Um, oh, I'll probably get about 3,000 miles more out of those. Well, in that case, they're road tyres. You're going to be doing modes most of the way. Use those and change to something with a better grip when you get to those sections. Um, there's just no point in sticking a new, you know, hard, harder tread tyre on until you get to the, the, the gnarly yeah. stuff, is there? Yeah, it's all about um, use, isn't it? I mean, like when I say 50-50, you know, is the is a tire that nobody would want. I mean, I just mean that it's the way that we that they list the tires, 50-50. And by the way, all these percentages that they put out, they're they're done by marketing in the company. They're not put out by some scientist in a lab saying, you know, well, I've calculated this to apply this much grip off-road. It's a marketing thing. So to give you an understanding, I, in my mind, what you're better off to do is look at the tire. Like you, you have that tire that's, that's you know, sold as a 50-50 tire. Clearly it does what you want. You know you're going to have good traction on road and you're going to get a certain amount of traction off-road. I think in my mind, I always think of the least uh, or the, pl- the place where you're going to need the traction the most. So if you're heading off road and you're really concerned about having the most traction, well, maybe you want to run a knobby tire, you know, and, and wear it down on the road and just understand that it's going to wear and it's not going to handle as good on the road. It, it comes down to that. But I think it has a lot more to do. Don't you guys agree that it has a lot more to do with uh, the, the visual aspect of the tire? You sort of look at it and look at the tread. If it's knobby, it's going to get more d- a grip in the dirt less on the road. If it's smooth, vice versa. Um, look, I'm not so sure about that. I, I think what you need to do is, um, as Sam says, look at where you're going. Now, how many adventure bikes go off on a really snotty, dirty road, fully loaded? You know, come on. It, you are going to spend most of your time on tracks or reasonably built roads or tar. And I really think that that 60-40 is actually a good compromise and unless you're doing really hard stuff, um, you're looking for long wear sometimes. Um, in my experiences going to South America, we just used our normal Tourette's tyres because um, we knew when we got into Chile, Argentina, and even down Route of 40, which is a dirt road with a lot of wind. Well, I know these tyres. I know they grip pretty well. I know I get reasonable life out of them. That's fine. And when I uh, knew we were going into uh, rougher stuff and particularly heading up into uh, Prudhoe Bay and places like that, it was on to Heidenauer tyres, which are really hard-wearing compound tyres, which are terrible on a wet, uh, tarred road, um, but give you really reasonably good grip 
in, on a, a dirty, muddy track or road. But unless you are really, really proficient at trying to get them off a rim, yeah, good luck with your projects because you'd have to use the weight of the bike using the side stand or what I carry sometimes these tyre pliers to break the beat and they are really, really hard on the sidewalls. So if, if you think where you're going and you think you might be getting flat tyres, just think of that. Can I change this? Will I be able to change this tyre? Um, that to me that makes sense. Um, getting a full on, and I've I've got them on my TT six hundred. I've got strictly off road tyres, which shouldn't be on the road, and uh, they are rippers in the dirt. You know, you can you can really hook it in, and the front wheel hangs on beautifully. But get them on the road, and they're bloody terrible, and you're all over the place. You're walking all over the place. So again, it's horses for courses. What we're talking about here is adventure riding, and to me, adventure riding is. Uh, a bit of everything. So you're not going to be going 10 tenths and and scratching around corners or um, smoking up the tyre in your backyard like um, somebody on on this panel. Uh, (laughs) You're trying to get the fear wear out of it. Um, You know, I've I've had all sorts of things. I mean, I ran out of tyre in in Central America and I ended up with some crappy thing called a continental, but it wasn't a continental as we know it. And it was terrible. And I only used it for about 2,000 Ks. And when I got into Texas, changed it straight away. And the same in India. And, um, you know, I had a down to canvas uh, on a tyre in India. And I had to get something black and round that held air. And that's fine. But you just ride within limitations of the tyre, as Sam said. So, you know, you Brian, what you're saying there makes infinite sense to me. And I, I keep thinking back to the days when people first started doing long distance transcontinental travel and there were no nobblies. They were just riding in using whatever was available. And of course there were road ties um, and they rode all of these places. But it's the same as um, choosing a motorcycle, isn't it? Um, You choose a motorcycle for the conditions that you're mostly going to be riding in because if you've got the right bike, then you will be able to go faster or you'll be able to pick it up more easily or or whatever. And tyres do the same. But what you said about changing tyres, my goodness, that's a a heavy-duty influence, isn't it? But the other thing that I think that really affects this is knowledge of what the specs are for your tyres as for how much air you can ride in them. Because, of course, going on the dirt or on the sand, then letting air out gives you that much more surface hitting the ground, so therefore more grip anyway. And you can take um, um, a 60-40, for example, and give it just significant, um, more significantly more ability by changing the air pressure. But I think one of the keys there is just to have a look and see what the manufacturers say is the maximum um, or the minimum amount of air that you're actually going to be allowed to ride with them. That's another point too, BMWs and things like that with tyre pressure sensors. So I get down to 18 PSI and they, they blink and scream at you the whole time and sometimes you might need to get down to those lower pressures. You know? And that's that, that can be an issue. I mean, four-wheel driving, I've had tyre pressures down to 12 PSI, you know. Um, but um, and the other thing is, you know, unless you're going 10 tenths on the dirt and when you're using moose and you're putting – uh, lockers on your on your rims and all that sort of stuff. Well, you're not doing any of that in, uh, adventure riding. You are plodding along and you're seeing the countryside and enjoying it and your tyres just need to be capable of doing that. That's, uh, that's, that's my thoughts anyway. Yeah. I think you need to differentiate between 
really what you call adventure riding versus adventure travel. We're all really yeah, good adventure travelers. True, true. And yeah. if you're an adventure rider, as many people consider themselves to be, and they go out and, to be honest, to a large extent on a big bike, they play silly ass in the bush on a big bike. And then you want some really good traction. You want something that's got, um, that's fairly gnarly and knobbly. And that's great if that's what you want to do. But if you want to talk adventure travel and going places, first, you're heavily loaded. You got too much stuff. You might even have somebody on the back. Now, I don't know about you or anybody else out there, but you've got to be a really good rider to go quickly off-road with a passenger and a full load of luggage quickly enough that you actually need a knobby tire. I know when I'm out riding, I'm riding through Africa, through South America, on many terrible, terrible roads, mud and slop and gravel and sand, I ran a straight street tire on the back with a dual-purpose-ish front tire of whatever ilk I could get my hands on, and it was fine. We never had any issues because I'm always plodding along, looking at the scenery, and I have two things foremost in my mind. Number one, I got my wife in the back. Number two, we want to get to where we're going intact. That's it. Mm -hmm. So therefore, I'm not going fast and riding hard. I don't need a knobby tire. It, you, you, I think you're absolutely right to split in, uh, this into into two different sections. I've ridden in the states with um, some of the guys, and um, they've got big bikes with you know hardcore knobblies on, and um, and they're just going for it. And what they make those bikes do, absolutely fantastic. It fills me with awe. Um, I don't have the ability to do what these guys are doing, so full respect. But it is completely different when you're overlanding, isn't it? Because totally. You, you're looking after the bike because you don't want to be um, bending it because, hey, when are you going to get spare parts for it and how much of your budget is that going to eat by trying to repair a bike? And, of course, you're looking after yourself because, yeah, you go too fast, fully loaded in darkest and the most remote corner of Africa. And, uh, again, how much of that is going to be a, a trip killer? Mm-hmm. Well, if you've been in the middle of nowhere, you could be dead. I mean, if that's if a big fully loaded bike lands on you yep. in the middle of nowhere and you're lying there for three days, you're dead. Yep. There's just no way. So you just don't ride that way. I just want to go back to what we mentioned about the um, the air pressure just before we get too far from it. That one thing with big bikes nowadays, uh, the big adventure bikes, you have to be careful about going running too low of air pressure. You end up with a, a bent rim. You know, you get the snake bite um, mm-hmm. from hitting rocks. That's one thing to keep in mind. What were you going to say, Brian? A couple of things I was going to say. One was um, some bikes nowadays uh, are having tyres made especially for them by one manufacturer. Now, be very aware of that, you know, and that to me that's a worry. It hasn't hit the adventure bike market yet, but don't be surprised if it does. And that's a real problem if if you're doing the things that uh, adventure motorcyclists do. the other thing was um, being uh, talking about um, being uh, binning it and being dead. If you if you bin your motorcycle in the bush, uh, you do die out there. Uh, only two weeks ago, I think it was, a quite a reasonably experienced young rider in his twenties uh, got caught out in off the Gibb River Road in Western Australia and died out there. People were out looking for him for uh, about a week, I think, maybe a bit less. 
uh, before they found him. But, you know, he's gone out there underprepared and uh, with a heavy bike that he couldn't um, move too easily and um, um, lack of water, uh, not enough preparation, uh, bike breaks down, you're gone. So your tyres are essential for that and you've got to look after your bike as well. Do you guys run um, a certain kind of tire when you're at home as opposed to when you're on a trip? Like Graham, do, do you do you have a certain kind of tire that you always put on your KLRs when you're heading out on a trip as opposed to what you will do when you're run, just running around the house or home rather? Uh, I, I do. Um, I don't know. You, do, you started this by saying you want to, didn't want to talk about brands, but I've only got one brand and I've only got one type of tire. Uh, on the KLR. Oh, no, I don't care about talking about brands. I, I just said we don't have to narrow it down. Like, we're not here to, to try and say this is the ultimate tire because there is no ultimate tire. We all understand okay. that. But. Yeah, no, it's, uh, I, I go with uh, Mifo Explorers and that's what I've done all my trips on, um, on both the KLR and the States. And I've gone down to Mexico on both the KLR over here when I've gone to wherever I've gone. So I always stick with them. I know them, I like them. They're not too expensive. They work for me. And, you know, you can't expect everybody to agree or disagree, but the Mifa Explorers work for me and my style of riding, my power of bike and everything. Now, I had exactly the same on the back of a KTM 950 that I had. And as you were saying, that that tyre disappeared in no time because it was a far more powerful bike. I was riding it on tarmac and it wore really quickly. But with a less powerful bike, less horsepower, less strain on the back tyre, I easily get 10,000 miles out of them. And... They work for me. So whether I'm doing a trip or whether I'm not, whether um, that's that's the tire that I use for my it's for my car. So it's suited to the bike. It's suited to the sort of journeys I do. I do. It's sort suited to my riding style. So it works for me. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned the bike part of it because it's so true, isn't it? I mean, it depends on the bike. If you're running a 650, it's one thing. If you're running a leader bike, it's something completely different. And certainly, you have different options as well. Can I come, just jump in with a comment there? Because, you know, I was thinking about this and I was going through um, the manufacturer's specs for um, my bike. And I was thinking, gosh, you know, how, how many times have I ridden my bike with tires that wouldn't necessarily be within the manufacturer's recommended range? And it occurred to me that that being the case, I wonder whether insurance companies would jump on the board and use that as an excuse if you had a blowout, for example, um, to, to not pay out because you didn't have the recommended tires for your bike or the tires weren't recommended for that weight of bike. Yeah, if, if the tires are spec is under, they could certainly do it. I mean, whether they have the smarts to do it or not is one thing, but they could certainly do it if the tire was under spec for the bike. Well, it would make yeah. sense too if you're running a knobby tire and you, and you had a, a get off on the highway or something like that. I mean, yeah, I, I could see there could be implications there as well. Yeah, well, as long as it's DOT approved in North America, you're fine. Um, other countries, of course, have different specs as to what they allow for tires. And as long as it's legal on the street, the insurance company can't say anything. But having said that, there's an issue. It's very easy to do under, under spec a tire. A lot of people don't understand what is the correct spec and how to figure out what's the correct weight um, on the sidewall of the tire. It may say, for instance, max 42 PSI at 350 kilos. Some people think that 42 PSI is the recommended pressure. No, it's the maximum pressure mm -hmm. at maximum weight. The, the bike manufacturer will spec a different pressure, probably 36 or 32 or something like that, for a tire that's rated at 42 for maximum. But you've got to understand the difference between maximum 
and correct recommended pressure under normal conditions with just a passenger or just a load of luggage. So it's down to the tire manufacturer always has different specs for their tire. So while BMW may say X tire, we recommend this pressure. As soon as you change to a different brand of tire, you need to take a look at what that tire manufacturer recommends for your bike as far as pressure goes and go by that, not what BMW says about your bike because BMW gives you a number for the factory original equipment tire. So you've got to understand the differences there and know where to go to get your specs. That's actually a really interesting point, Grant, because if you think about it, if BMW, for example, um, produce a bike and issue a particular type of tire with that, that bike, then everything's going to be written for that relationship, isn't it? Because exactly. You sticking a different exactly. tire on. Um, Everything changes. Uh, tire pressure is is just as important to know about as the different types of um, different types of tires themselves, isn't it? Yeah. Well, people ask uh, every once in a while, "How come you do a tire changing seminar and it takes three hours? How could it possibly take three hours to talk about how to change tires?" Well, tire pressures is one of the big things we talk about, and it takes time to get people to understand what the correct settings are, how to figure out what it is, all the different types of bikes. What about when you're overloaded? How do you deal with that? It takes time. And it's, there's a lot of things to understand. And that's why you should buy my DVD or video. Download my video. Was that well done or not? <laughs> maybe, maybe you're just a bit too slow changing tires, Greg. <laughs> Well, I will admit that I have done a tire change in four minutes from running, bike running to bike running, four minutes. But that was a long wow. time ago on a dirt bike because I was running the uh, two-day qualifiers for the six days. And that's what you had to do. But it was a lot of practice. Yeah, but watches were slower back then. Yeah, sure they were. <laughs> <laughs> and I was a whole lot younger and stronger. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. Brute force and ignorance goes a long way when you don't have a lot of finesse. But uh, your finesse gets a lot better when you try when you start getting you, down to six minutes. Did you, did you have your detergent with you to make it slip on easier? Or, or I presume um, Graham is using uh, Marmite and peanut butter, are you, mate? <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be a desperate day when I put that on my tie. It's going to be licking off the roof. Could be licking it down the there and licking it. The job's done. <laughs> I'm just thinking. No, in those days, the tires were much softer, which made it a lot easier. Tires today are very, very stiff compared to tires in the old days. Very often, you could actually put a tire on bare hands, no tools required, mm, that's a good if you point. knew how to do it. I was at an MOA rally many years ago. This would have been about you know, 1972, I think. And I'd worn out a tire getting there, so I figured, right, better change it. Picked one up there and pulled it off. And some guys started gathering around, as they always do at these rallies when somebody's working on their bike. And pull it off, throw it on the ground, yank the tire off, and putting the new one on. And somebody said, oh, I think he's done this before. And I did it bare hands, no tools required. Just boom, 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 and the last little push. But that was with a soft tire. There's no tire today that I know of that you could possibly do that with. You need tire levers today. That was back so, in the day with soft tires and hard hands. Now it's the other way around, hard tires and soft hands. Yeah, soft everything. Wait a minute. That didn't come out right, Grant. <laughs> no, it didn't, did it? <laughs> Anyway, yes, tires are much <laughs> more difficult today. Um, oh, and Brian mentioned tire pliers. Tire pliers, there's two kinds. There's the ones you get in Australia, 
and they're really good. And then there's a Chinese copy, which is a pile of junk. Make sure the one you buy is, says made in Australia. The other one is true junk. And they um, weigh but, a ton and they, and they weigh in a the ton. bottom of my pannier and they've never been used on any of our trips. So they're the curse <laughs> of my existence. Well, Great tool to have. I'll tell you what you can do now, Shirley. You can go out to the pannier and take it out there and heave it into the bush because there's a better system. Oh, thanks. I'll do that. And it weighs almost nothing. Oh, even better. <laughs> yes. Motion Pro makes um, a, a bead breaker, they call it, and it's just two alloy levers that look like tire levers, except they got a funny little thing on the end of them. And you can break the bead on anything and everything out there relatively quickly, relatively easily. And some tires, it's, it's a dead snap. Uh, and they weigh almost nothing. Really good. Motion Pro. Good I've, stuff. I've got a pair of them, and that's what I use. But they do two yeah. different types. I've got a set in the shed here. And there's a very heavy pair for the shed, yes. which is... Uh, which is uh, much cheaper, which I went for. And mm -hmm. the Ally ones are lovely. I've got one of their tire, um, one of their tire levers with the spanner on the other end. Yes. And uh, they are fantastic. But yeah, you get what you pay for. I would love to have the light pair, but they were so expensive to get. Yeah, so. they run about, I think it's about $89 for a pair, oh, which yeah. is not cheap. But on the other hand, you're going to have them for years and years and years. Mine have been used many times. I do at least six or eight tire demos a year. I've had mine for, I think, three years now. They, so they've been used at least 20 times. They show a few marks. That's it. So they're going to last you a lifetime. And they're and really they do, good. They do have a tire lever on the other end as well. So they're sort of yes. on purpose, aren't they? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. You need. I, I believe in three tire levers. So I carry that pair on my 1200 plus one more uh, hazard lever. And that just does me just fine. Um, I use that lever to change my tires on my own GS at home all the time. No problem. Works great. I've also bought myself um, some Motion Pros. And Graham, I did go for the more expensive, lighter, smaller ones um, for, for traveling with. And I debated long and hard over the extra cost. And then I just thought, stuff it. That that weight um, saving is, is just significant. Um, but I do also carry um, two short tire levers and one long because I've got a dodgy back. Um, there are times when I just appreciate it. just a tiny bit more leverage without, you know, putting too much pressure on my lower back. Um, but, yeah, too, too short. Um, you said um, has it tire levers, um, didn't mm -hmm. you, Grant? I yeah. did. I, I keep meaning to have a look at those and I've not got around to it. They're lovely things. Um, but the other alternative that you can also use that's, I think, virtually the same and it could even be made by Hazard for BMW is the genuine BMW tire levers that came with probably your R80 GS. They certainly nah. came with my 86. No, nah, they didn't. Um, I think Birgit had some that came with hers. But yes. um, those are excellent. 84, so yes. Yeah, they are very yeah. good. That was back yeah, in the I've day when the those. airlines were giving uh, proper silverware and, uh, and dishes yes, to eat from. the real thing. <laughs> you don't get that anymore on motorcycles. Yeah, BMWs came with a, a pretty good toolkit, and then an option was a super toolkit, and the super toolkit was everything. You just you didn't need to buy any more tools, and it was all high-quality stuff, really well done. I've still got some bits of it, and they're they're still fine. I'm still using them. They're great. In fact, I've transferred some of them from my R80 GS to my 1200 GS and still using them. Mm. Good stuff. But those levers, 
those short ones are what I'm using, like a six inch lever and the two motion pro, the pair bead breaker pair is all I use. Just a six inch lever. It's fine on my 1200. It's all, all in the technique. If you know how to do it, you don't need a big lever. And I'm always nervous. And I always tell my, my students, don't use a big lever because if you're not really good with it, you're going to destroy your tires. If it's <laughs> difficult, stop and figure out why is it difficult? Because it shouldn't be difficult. If you're doing hide nows, yes, it's going to be difficult. Don't run hide nows. That's my simple answer to that. But everything else out there, and I've changed every brand of tire there is, give me two six-inch levers and I can get it off. It's fine. I wonder how many people listening to the show change their own tires and how many few. people take them to the shop to get them done and I wonder how many listeners are that have never done it and I know this guy or he works for some organization hang on a minute let me think about it but they do a DVD that's well worth watching on how to change a tire I've seen that um, yeah I've seen that I know the it's, one you mean I'm trying to think of it now oh, yeah, hang on a second oh. hey but it's no, Horizons I mean, Unlimited I'm, it's Grant that's, that's the one, one. Yeah, that's, that's it that's the one Oh, yeah, I forgot. That's right. I made that. But, you people just, are shameless. Absolutely <laughs> yes, we are. Well, Christmas is coming. <laughs> yes. But no, jesting aside, um, if you've never changed your tyres um, or you don't do it regularly, then get the DVD because you will learn an awful lot from me. And the peace of mind that it gives you when you're actually out on the road for those situations when the worst does happen, instead of having to wait for five hours for a recovery truck to come, and if you haven't got the cover, then pay out a fortune for it. It happened to me once, um, $230 to be Ooh. pulled off the Blue Ridge. But anyway, um, then, you know, just carry the right gear and know yeah. how to use it. Yeah, and I talk about all the right tools and all the rest of that in there. And it's also available as a download from Vimeo. So you don't have to buy a DVD if you don't want. Hang on a minute, Grant. You've got to mail by the way. <laughs> there's, there's alternatives here. Just just another point. You know, most most uh, bikes nowadays, a lot of uh, new adventure bikes are tubeless tyres. Yes. So, you know, plug plugging is uh, an option to get you out of trouble. You know, I've plugged many a tyre quite easily to get you out of trouble and mm -hmm. get you to where you can be fixed. You know, um, um, coming off the parkway, you know, you do 100 miles easily on a plug tyre. And if you carry a, a compressor, you can always, if it's losing a bit of air, you can always um, reinflate it on the run. Um, and I'll, what I've done uh, plugging a tyre is um, find the hole, drill it, plug it, and then use those little uh, nitrous um, um, canisters, two of those. CO2. Yeah, CO2, sorry, yeah, which will give you about uh, 18 to 20 PSI and then use the compressor to top it up to what you want. And that way it's sealing straight away from the inside. Yeah. So, and uh, that, that's how I've uh, got myself out of trouble. And sure. when you get somewhere where there's someone with a machine to change your tyre, that's a lot easier, I've got to say. Yeah, I still believe that everybody should know how to change their tyres. And I believe that everybody should do their own tyre changes so that they do know how to change their tyre when they're out in the middle of nowhere. Because as Sam just said, $230 for recovery when he could have done it himself. He probably was on a borrowed bike and didn't have the right tools and all the rest of it. But I mean, I know Sam knows how to do it. So it wasn't that that was the problem. But if you know how to do it and you're going to go adventure riding or you're going to go traveling, you're going to be someday somewhere where you haven't seen anybody for hours and hours, if not the whole day. There's not a soul out there and you got a flat tire and you don't know what to do with it. 
and you don't even have the tools, you're in a world of hurt. So yeah, practice. I, 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 I get that. I get that. But I really think nowadays most people are using um, a lot of um, uh, tubeless tyres and most of the kits that they carry are um, plugs more than anything yeah. else. Yeah. If they know how to use them. I've run into guys that have yeah. plug kits in their toolkit and they have yeah. no clue how to use it. Yeah. I've used yeah. more, more of my plugs on other people's tyres than my own. Yeah, so have I. In fact, I don't yeah. think I've ever had to plug a tyre of my own. Yeah, I haven't. I've never plugged a tyre of my own. I sure plugged a lot of other tires. Yeah. Somehow we went down the tire repair lane here <laughs> rather than the well, tire. Well, okay. we're talking tires. We're talking tires. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> but let's let's move on to oil then. We were going to discuss oil, so we're going to start oh, off yes, with synthetic oils. Oh, yes, that's my favorite. Oils. <laughs> no, we're not touching oils. Good. <laughs> but, um, but, but I am going to throw this in here. Noel Bowerman who I think a lot of us know from Facebook, yeah. um, sent sent in a question here. And I think it's really good because it, it sort of, I mean, there's a lot of things in the in the news and on social media nowadays and in the, the political climates and things like that that get people heated and, and get people debating. And, and what he sent, the question he sent in was, he was saying, um, he's wondering how you deal with arriving at someone's home. So you're traveling somewhere in a country that's not your own or a place that's not your own. You arrive and you have to deal with ideas, attitudes, and beliefs that are polar opposites, he says, to your own. So politics, left wing, right wing, relations with women, are women treated as subservient to men? Maybe it's hunting and, and you're a conservationist. Do you bite your tongue? Do you find ways to talk about it? Do you try and see someone's point of view? Sam? I think the first word that pops into my mind is respect the situation that you're in. Um, there are some places that you can travel in the world where um, the culture is so completely different to everything that you've been brought up with. And there may be things happening um, that you just don't have a grip on that are just completely alien. Well, how dumb would you be if you hoed in with your um, Western attitudes and so on before taking the time out to really learn and understand the culture of the situation that you're in? Um, and there have been times where we've stayed with people. Um, ah, we, we were invited um, to dinner in South Africa with an Argentinian neo-Nazi. And um, my goodness, when he showed us um, his cellar with um, Nazi uniforms and German Second World War machine guns and all of this sort of stuff. And after the, some of the comments that he'd been making, Bergen and I left. Um, that was the way to deal with that situation. We just very quietly, um, finished, left as soon as it was convenient for us to do that. Did, did you say anything um, to him? Did you, did you say to him, well, we're going to go, we've decided to leave, it, does, it isn't working out or anything? No, there was absolutely no point. That was not going to achieve anything. And I think that that's another key point, isn't it? If you, if you can achieve something positive by saying something, then it's worth doing. If you can't, then it's better just to vote with your feet. Mm, did the guy yeah. see you leave? Was there any sort of confrontation there? No, there wasn't. Um, I think that he sensed the cooling, though. Mm -hmm. yeah, I think you have to uh, just work with the situation and try and try and avoid those topics. I mean, politics, if somebody wants to talk politics to me as a general rule, I just say, I never talk politics. It's just too hard. Religion? No, don't talk religion either. That's you have yours, I have mine, he has his. Just avoid the topic. Just say clearly, no, I don't want to talk that stuff. It's, it's just 
too easy to get into trouble and start an argument. And it's more important to talk about things that we all agree on, or I shouldn't say that we agree on. That's a bad way to put it. Like more tires. <laughs> yes, let's talk about tires. Something that's can not I just so emotive. Go, can I just go back to Sam, please? Mm, sure. Um, Sam, did you know that this guy was a Nazi when you went to his place or did you discover it when he took you down into the cellar and showed you his collection? There was something odd um, about him, but he was a motorcyclist and he'd offered to help us and um, achieve something that we really wanted to achieve. Um, and when he invited us around for dinner, um, we just thought, yeah, okay, that sounds really cool. And very nice house, um, middle class, just, yeah. And then as we were there, we started discovering more and more of the dodgy sensations. Birgit is much better tuned in to, to, to things that are potentially going wrong than I am. I tend to just sort of go for it and see what happens. Um, but her antennae works very, very well. And she was picking up on the dodgy issues far quicker than I was. But when we were shown down to the cellar, that was, that was the clincher. Yeah, it was, it was time to, to head out at first opportunity. Yeah, well, I, my wife actually uh, has said to some people, you're an idiot. Mm. Um, that has happened. It's just as well Brian can fight his way out of these arguments that I start. Um, yeah, but surely you can get right. away with that. There are so many situations where a guy couldn't say something like that yeah. and get away with it. We'd end up with a knuckle sandwich. The guy I told that he was an idiot, um, a complete idiot, and I think I may have used a couple of expletives um, as additional adjectives. Um, <laughs> we were in a bar on a ferry and after... In Alaska. In Alaska, and uh, he decided it was time to go to bed, which was probably a smart move because I don't think I would have backed down at all that day. It was all about firearms and, you know, he, he was uh, telling tales about what he knew about Australia, which was all wrong, and sometimes you do have to to stand up for what you believe in. Other times you do have to be a little bit delicate. We were in Iran um, and uh, a, a man we were, were with asked if we believed in God and um, we both just sort of muttered, sure, and a young Australian that we were with went nut and was quite happy to have a huge discussion with this guy about the the um, whys and wherefores of all gods, his, Christians, whoever. And um, it became a little tense and the guy was a little unhappy. Uh, yeah, it was that was a tricky one, but I didn't tell him he was an idiot. I think well, when it comes to religion, a, a, an easy way to, to, to get out, you know, for example, you know, are you a Christian? You can just say, yep, I'm tonight. <laughs> 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 I've just been rereading uh, Eureka and I'll tell you more about that in the in the plugs but I was reminded of several things which it sort of slipped my mind from the trip and there was a point when I was in Turkey and uh, I was sort of wild camping but it wasn't the ideal place because there were other families around barbecuing and I was trying to wait for it to get dark before I actually put up my tent and trying to be as inconspicuous as I, as I could and uh, this family waved me over and insisted that I join them and they were going to have a barbecue and eat with them. And so they didn't have any English. I didn't have any Turkish. And it was they were lovely and friendly, a father and daughter and 
and boyfriend and what have you. But um, it was it was a little awkward. It wasn't the most relaxing of situations. I was like, are we going to have this barbecue then or what? It, waiting, waiting. Eventually they put some coals on and lit the coals and still we waited and still we waited. And then they put on the food and they cooked it and the table was spread out and it had everything on it. There was Coca-Cola and all the different meats and that. No alcohol, of course, I'm Muslim. And I'm so hungry. Are we going to eat this or what? And then the mosque chanted, it was Ramadan, and they were waiting for the official announcement that it is now darkness, it is now time when you can eat. I'm so glad I didn't pick at a chicken leg or something beforehand <laughs> to do that. So I think you know, when it comes to different cultures and that, the, the trick is watch, watch and, and, and learn. Just don't initiate anything, never be the first, let other people do it first and at the end of this wonderful barbecue and they played music on their phones and danced and everything it was a wonderful interaction and at the end of it all we were right by the coast right on the sea um they packed everything into plastic bags and without thought tossed the plastic bags into the sea (laughs) (laughs) i mean it wasn't done out of disrespect this is just what we do we've done we've tied everything together neatly and now we're throwing it in the sea oh man Dispose of the rubbish. Oh dear! Did you say anything? <laughs> no. What can you say? I mean, too late. The anyway. sea is littered with plastic and plastic bags. Um, what, what could I? I, mean, I didn't even. Even if I had the language, what could I say? It's it's. You know, what if it was something else that was you know more of a hot topic for you? Maybe you were in in a place where they they treat women poorly, and in, in, in your eyes, would you say something then? That'd be a tough one, wouldn't it? I don't know. We, we were in uh, Peshawar in Pakistan, oh. and um, Shirley, I, I had to, a little smile on my face when she said, "You know, you'd be um, demure and 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 uh, bad at people and and take and and don't take people on." Well, I've never known you not to do that, mm. but uh, we, we were looking out. We were on the street in Peshawar, which is a pretty you know uh, dodgy place sometimes, and there's a bloke whipping a donkey with blood running down its flank and Cheryl just into him, just absolutely into him. And I'm thinking, okay, um, everyone around here is carrying a gun except me. This is going to be interesting. But uh, yeah, he, just, he just looked as if who is that mad Western woman, you know. Yeah. I felt better for it though because I said something that if, if, he, if he understood, which I think he did, he certainly detected that I was annoyed. It may have made him think about and it. Make, and it makes no sense, you know, that these animals, they, they need these animals to provide food and transport and all the rest for it. And they, you know, they are whipping it to death, basically, and that's what he was doing. Yeah. yeah. Did I he think, start? Though, if you're a visitor in somebody else's country and you're seeing something that goes on regularly and you don't even have the language, yet you're opposed to what you're seeing, you, it's very easy to look like a, a, a screaming, hysterical immigrant. And, and and what I don't know, what right do you have? I know they mistreat their whatever, True. their animals or whatever. I, this just happened at a car boot sale in Bulgaria a couple of weeks ago. Now, people don't have a lot of respect for their dogs here. They're on chains 24 hours a day. They're fed bread and they bark all night. They're there for protection and, 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 and they don't see them as we do sort of as we do as sort of pets and, and lovable animals. So they are mistreated. There's a lot of Brits here, a lot of immigrants who will uh, start saving dogs and, and, and trying to save them from the, the Bulgarian way of keeping them. Now, 
There was a car boot sale the other day, which is made predominantly British people all going. It's like a you know a flea market, um, and it's predominantly British people. And there was a dog, one of the houses outside, that was tied up and yelping. And it, there was another dog with a bad leg, and there was a poorly starving puppy. Not pleasant, but this happens everywhere across the country because they're not they're not doctored or anything. So there's a lot of you know puppies and kittens and that. Now this British people. We're yelling and screaming at the people that the Bulgarians own dogs saying, you shouldn't own animals, you shouldn't do this, this is this is not right. And then got my girlfriend to go over and translate in their crusade to try and save this dog. It's like, if you've really got a crusade to try and save this country from the mistreatment of animals, learn the bloody language. Don't bring someone else on to have your argument for you. I just thought, it just feels like you've brought your own little ethics and your own stuff from your own country and you're imposing them on somebody else's world where this world functions and and I don't think they should meet and I don't think really that you should come over there with your ideals and and, and enforce them on other people particularly if you don't have the language or all the facts to hand you know yeah, I think in the case of, of this dog thing you know you don't know the fact that the scrawny dog could be there to protect their vegetables from goats coming over and eating them all so that they can feed them to their starving kids so they've got a level of priorities mm-hmm. but you don't necessarily know that, that going in with all guns blazing can just be a little bit i don't know offensive perhaps it also depends on upbringing right i mean there's certain areas where people live certain ways and, and you know it it's not that um I mean, they, they certainly don't see it as wrong. If you've been brought up a certain way with a certain type of belief, that's the way it is. But but what about when it's like, like a, I hate to keep going back to this. I feel like I am. But what about if it's, and this is maybe because it's an easy target, but what if it's, the, you know, with the way they treat women, you know, in, in for instance, something that's really egregious to you, do you say something or maybe you don't go there to begin with? I don't know. I don't know. It's a really tough one, isn't it? You can't, you're not going to change it. No, you're not yeah. going to change it one on one, are you? You really, you're better no. off, even with the dog thing, you're better off to leave and try and, you know, build some sort of movement rather than try and attack a single person. Uh, some uh, some of it's right. Some of you are right and some of you are wrong. I think it comes a point where sometimes you just can't take it anymore and you do say something. Uh, but and a good example is um, eating dog in Vietnam. And it, a lot of it happens in the in the high country of North Vietnam, and um, uh, that's changing. Attitudes are changing because there's a lot of Westerners going in there that don't like that, and there's a lot of um, uh, it, it, it's just it's just the attitude is changing because of the way we treat animals, and maybe the the country's getting a little bit little bit uh, uh, more Westernised. Also in Pakistan, when they have goat killing day, when it's um, the end of a, a festival and you, you drive, ride through a town and you'll see 50 goats waiting under a tree to be hung up and slaughtered. Um, well, you know, I, I get that. That's part of a ritual and it's part of um, uh, being able to uh, eat and all those sorts of things. But when something is really egregious to you, I think um, sometimes you have to express your point of view. Now, how you do that, whether it be feisty like uh, Birgit and Shirley or in a more gentle way, as you did, Sam, by just getting up and leaving, I think you can make a stand. Mm, that's that's a good point because you're saying it's changing for Westerners uh, coming and not liking eating dog. But it's it's sort of ironic. Westerners don't want to eat dog, but we have no problem eating cow. 
And we have no problem eating cows that have been brought up, hustled together, unable to move in sheds, never see the light of day, never eat the food that they're supposed to be eating, never get the right exercise or anything else. Um, people coming in from developing world countries look at us with gobsmacked, stunned amazement that we can treat our animals the way that we do. Well, that's in England, Sam. I mean, we could discuss this for ages. In Australia, our cows are all free range. We don't have cows um, herded into sheds and kept there for four months or five Germany, months during Germany winter. Actually. Germany do it as well. I just, yeah, I, I'm obviously suitably chastened because you all think I'm loudmouth, nasty tourist who just goes and blurts a, a mouth <laughs> No, off. we don't. But if, you, we well, um, but if you don't say anything, nothing will ever change. And, and there is a saying, which I can't think of the whole one, but it's about, you know, they came for the trade unionists, they came for the women, they came for, and when they came to me, there was no one left to protect me because they'd all been taken away. Oh, that was a nationalist so, saying. Yeah, it is a nationalist saying. Yeah. But, you know, you need to, sometimes I think um, you need to stand up and say something. It, you may, they may think little of you for it, but um, you've got to think of how you feel about yourself I really don't think, Graham. if you saw someone really giving his wife, uh, treating his wife really badly, that you would walk away. I, the, yeah, it's hypothetical, sure. I've never seen that happen. I don't know how I would react in that situation. I was kind of, refer, you keep in my comments for, for animals and the way people treat their animals or, or lack of respect for environment. To see one human treat another human that way, I don't know, sure. I haven't given that any thought. I don't know how I would deal with that given that, given that seeing it firsthand I'd have to think about that at the time <laughs> yeah I think a lot of it would depend on whether you could actually make a difference or not I think you know you, you can feel badly about something a situation but if you can't actually make a difference there's not a lot of point all you do is get people upset on both sides and you're not changing anything so but you've really, got to start. The change has you, to start got, somewhere, Grant. It, it starts depends with on one voice. You can. Yeah, yes, but you don't I know agree. if you can. Like what Shirley's saying is, is she is she's saying is that like if people start doing that, if there's if Shirley does it and Birgit does it, and then somebody else comes and does it, pretty soon it's going to have an influence, right? Like like they're saying about the dogs. I mean, I think it's a good point. You may not know if you're if you can make a difference. I mean, I don't know which way I lean either. It's it's a really tough one, isn't it? I, mean, I feel like I, I feel the same as Graham is, is saying. You know, you you sort of don't know what you what you would do unless you're in that situation, and I guess it depends on what you're seeing. Yeah, I think a lot of it depends too on the language. If they understand what it is you're saying, and you can have a reasoned conversation about why you think this is not a good thing, what they're doing, then I think you have a, a chance of making a difference. But if all you're doing is yelling and screaming in a language they don't even understand, you're wasting your breath, and you're just making them mad. They're going to get upset too. You're, you're not changing anything. You're just causing more problem. Uh, so I think you ha it's a fine line. You have to decide, can I make a difference here or can, am I just going to come across as a loudmouth tourist? And I think, you know, not all, all respect to Shirley, you've got to be careful where that line is. It's certainly a controversial subject. That got us all going, hasn't it? Graham, I was just <laughs> thinking about dogs. You know, we were down in Portugal, and in Portugal, uh, very few dogs are pets. Um, they're working dogs. So they live outside. They're chained up when they're not working. They're fed scraps to discipline a dog there. If it's doing something you don't like, then you pick up a stone and throw it at it. And the dogs see somebody lean down to pick up a stone, and they instantly stop what they were doing that wasn't wanted, et cetera, et cetera. And these dogs, they're, they're not fat. 
they're not pampered, but we didn't see any that were looking mistreated as such. To us, when we first saw them, we were thinking, well, no, I mean, these dogs are outdoors. There's nowhere for them indoors. That's mistreatment, et cetera, et cetera. But we didn't see any unhappy and healthy looking dogs. Yeah, we'll always remember, too, that most animals live outdoors. If a dog is living outdoors all the time, they grow an appropriate level of fur and a, a nice winter coat, and, th- and they're actually fine. You see some movies about dogs mistreated in the UK, and they're left outside, and they're not fed properly, and all of the rest of it. And it, it, yeah, your heart goes out to it. But going back to um, you know cultural things that you see when you're travelling, I mean, Iran is a perfect example, isn't it? You see um, outrage from Western women um, in particular, I think about the women there wearing chadors and so on. And I know I've stopped, told this story um, before. I used to look at them as being um, black ghosts because, you know, head to toe, black robes, walking down the streets, and sometimes you couldn't see the feet, so they seemed to just sort of glide across the ground. And the only way you could tell whether somebody was old or young was by their eyes, because that was the bit that you could see, or whether they were wearing stockings or socks. And getting invited into a family um, where the chadors and everything else were complete were off, and finding the girls wearing mini skirts and plunging necklines and all of that sort of thing, and being the ones who were in charge out in the street, the men were in charge in the home. The women were without doubt. The men minded their p's and q's all of the time, and the women just let this wicked sense of humour come out. But they had no problems at all with wearing the chadors. Yet go to another town and it wasn't black, but they would be wearing the headdresses and so on. And they would be rebelling against it a little bit more because they would be saying, well, actually, why should we have to? What I'm trying to say is it it varies from one town to the next sometimes. And what seems to be wrong in one place, by the time you've moved another 150 miles down the road, the same culture has just developed for one reason or another. And maybe some of those reasons that they've developed have been because somebody or some people have quietly said something. Well, well, there's plenty of examples of that. The Long Neck villages in um, northern uh, Thailand, uh, which are refugees coming from... Um, Burma, oh Burma, the reason that they have um, those rings around their neck is to stop the women being um, stolen by other villagers. That's how it all started. And, you know, you try, you know, Cheryl's had plenty of examples where you try and go into a Catholic church with a woman wearing uh, shorts. She's been stopped in Italy and uh, had to wear something else. And you've had to take your bike pants off and put a skirt on to go into um uh, monastery in Greece. I mean, you know, that's what it is. And really, um, I, did, I didn't find um, any of the women um, quite emaciated in um, Iran at all, but in, in Pakistan, we did. In Iran, you find women working in banks, um, all sorts of places, even though they're, they're wearing headscarves and all that sort of stuff. That's the way it is. Is that a cat scratching with a bell on? Yes, that's, um, that's our cat, Joey. It's, it's dinner time and the dog is standing in front of the refrigerator. He thinks it's dinner time as well. And we have a house guest who's pacing up and down the corridor because he probably thinks it's dinner time. <laughs> I recognise the bell sound because we have a bell for our dog that we put on every now and then. It's good yeah, because you, you can... 
you can keep track of her when you're running through, like when she's running through the bush. I'm not running through the bush, I'm walking. But It's a bit early, but that's a very festive sound. It is, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we're, um, I think because of our time here, we're going to skip um, our last topic that we were going to do. By the way, a, a fellow named John Pomeroy wrote in and said he, he thinks, it, maybe it's been mentioned a few times, I guess, comments about it, but he's wondering if there's a story behind Sam's Indiana Jones hat. <laughs> oh, I look cool in it, don't I? Uh, um, how did that hat come about? Oh, I don't know. It's, it's um, You know, I'm always bagging on about um, every bit of travel kit has to have two uses if it possibly, possibly can. And if you work at, work at it, you can have it. Um, that hat is um, a sunshade and um, it's also a portable umbrella that I don't have to use a hand for. Um, it, it just, yeah, it just sort of arrived one day where I saw it and I thought, yeah, that works. Put it on. Birgit said, oh, that suits you. So it's just stayed. I'm actually on the hunt for another one because I've pretty much worn this one out. And can I find another one? This may well have been a one-off, which in a way makes it just something more special. Okay, well, moving right into plugs. I think we're going to start off with Grant. What do you got for plugs? Just we got lots of 2019 meetings coming up. There's just so much going on. I'm losing track and losing the will to live here a little bit. It's just so much. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, check out the meetings. Of course, we have all kinds of deals on tire changing DVDs, videos, and all sorts of other ones. They're all available. Special prices coming up for Christmas. Um, that's the basics. We have no more events this year. That's it. Our first event is coming up in, ooh, what is it now? I can't even think. It must be April. Yes, it's April. Our first event's in April. So in the meantime, check out the events page, com slash events. See what's on, see what's coming. Don't forget, when you're going on a trip, you're planning on going somewhere exciting, take a look at the event schedule and see if you can tie in an event with it. An events, an HU Travelers event is a great place to meet other travelers and especially travelers from the area. And often you'll get invited to come stay at their place or they'll show you the great rides in the area and show you all the interesting places to go. So it's a great way to meet with other travelers. So remember to check that out when you're planning a new trip. And of course, go back to the DVDs. Got to check those are out. You, are you doing a calendar this year, Grant? We are having some issues with the calendar. With the loss of the Tour Tech sponsorship, we don't have their help um, to create the calendar because they were we were paying for the printing, but they were paying for the shipping worldwide to get it to our distributors, which made it possible. So without that, we're doing a different calendar. It's going to be smaller, um, and we hope to have that available by December 1st. We're working on it right now. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> we are very disappointed we couldn't do the big, beautiful calendar. But we will have a calendar. The pictures are wonderful. I've seen them all, of course. Um, there will be something available. So check back December 1st at least. And, of course, you mentioned Christmas, so that's the time to get to all of all of the, the sites uh, that we're going to talk about here and, and see what's available and think about it for Christmas, if not for you, for somebody else. We can plug that more, of course, as we go. Brian, what have you got? I... Um I've got a special plug to do tonight. Um, we've got uh, a guest staying with us tonight who is actually going to Jindabyne HU with us. And he's um, started, he's tried to do this several times, come across to 
the rise is unlimited um, via motorcycle from Perth. Now, each time he's failed miserably, failed miserably to get a Incredibly. <laughs> <laughs> but um, Xander Cabat has come over um, to help us out with Horizons Unlimited in Jindabyne, which we're ever so grateful for. But I'll let him tell you the story, but really the plug is for uh, Xander's bike shop over in Perth. And later on next year, I'm, I'm going to go ride around Australia and I'm going to run a little, we're going to do something in your shop. Xander, and we'll do a couple talks, um, both uh, plugging your book and hopefully doing one for the wall to wall as well. Yeah, so my plug is Xander, and I'm going to get Xander to talk to you about his shop and what services he offers to the people in Perth, Western Australia. Hi, guys. Hi, Grant. Hey, Xander. Xander, Xander. welcome to Adventure Rider Radio Raw. Oh, thank you. Uh, been a long time listener, actually. Um, <laughs> So my shop, Overlander Adventure Equipment in um, WA, it's the, well, probably the only truly dedicated shop to world traveling and two-wheel travel um, in WA. Uh, we came up with the idea when we were riding my uh, Honda XRV 750 Africa Twin around the world, somewhere around uh, Namibia, actually. Um, known Grant and Sam for a few years now. Um, yeah. So Sam, when do you come into our shop, huh? <laughs> so so uh, my shop um, as I said it's, it's based on overland travel um, overlander adventure equipment we specialize in everything that you could possibly need to go overland traveling by motorcycle or bicycle and a little bit of 4x4 uh, four four as well um, so we have tents motorcycle gear and years riding gear, books, DVDs, maps, information. We also help travelers um, as they're coming through. We uh, do a lot of uh, repair work and fit-up work. Um, currently, we have three Swiss travelers' motorcycles in the back of my shop <laughs> and two Germans uh, all coming through. So, so, so what's the website? The website is www.overlanderae.com.au. It also comes up as overlanderae.com, oae.com. There's a couple of them. (laughs) Very wise. Seriously, anyone that's going around Australia, and, you know, some of us do that a bit. That's just one lap. Um, Quite often you're looking for tyres or you're looking for service or you're looking for something. By the time you get to Perth, if you go anti-clockwise, which most do, uh, because of the weather. Um, so um, I'd thoroughly recommend Xander's shop. So there you go. And I think Cheryl's got a plug as well. Um, I just want to let people know um, we've always had a problem with our books being so bloody expensive to post to people in the UK, the US and Canada. So we've done um, a bit of maths and we've decided as a Christmas present we're virtually giving the books away and you're just having to pay for postage. So if people go on to aussiesoverland.com.au, we're doing – it has to be for the three books in series, not just one. But the US, it's uh, $65. US The UK, it's 52 quid. And Canada's about $86, so Canadian dollars, because their money's about worth as much as about the Southeast Asian peso, which is the Australian dollar. So if people go to aussiesoverland.com.au and go to the books tab 
and there'll be a special um, tab for people outside of Australia who would like to buy the three books and we can get them to you in five business days. So certainly in time for Christmas. So that's my plug. Wow, fantastic. That's a good one. What a great deal. That's a deal. That's kind of nice. It's a, it's a shame that the shipping is, is so darn expensive. I mean, yeah, shipping is ridiculous. We even find it just for stickers, mailing stickers out. Um, by the time you pay for the stickers and you, and you pay for the mailing, it really adds up and you end up with just a couple of dollars left uh, out of what you got. So, well, it's too bad that you have to give them away, but I mean, a great deal for anybody looking for Christmas gifts for themselves or somebody else. All three books. Can't go wrong. Thanks, Jim. Well, and of course, that link uh, will be in the show notes, as they all will be. Sam, what do you have? Well, I have three plugs because I'm greedy. Um, the first one is I, I want to introduce people to two other authors' books. Um, and yeah, you know, it is that time and people are thinking about buying Christmas presents and for friends, family, that sort of thing. And um, I'm really pleased that, you know, by the time this show is happening, I will have been selling these um, two books like hotcakes at the um, motorcycle show in the UK. And I think um, this may be out just about when the show's on. But that's not the reason I'm saying this. The reason I'm saying this is because I want to highlight these two books to people who are thinking, um, you know, yep, time to get books. And once they've got Brian and Shirley's, then um, consider these. The first one is um, called Rice and Dirt. Um, it's by Alexandra Fefopoulou, and I think I've pronounced that right, and um, Sturgis Gorgos. Sturgis rides a Vespa scooter the length of West Africa. Now, for most motorcycle overlandy types, they're going to be possibly thinking, what, a scooter? Really? Well, it can't be interesting. I'm a motorcyclist. Now, mates, um, read this book. You are going to love it. It's beautifully written. The adventures are quite mad. Um, Sturgios is a complete loon at times, but that just opens up um, opportunities for him. He's a really funny, interesting guy. And his descriptions of traveling down through West Africa, um, absolutely spot on. So, yeah, Rice and Dirt, that's um, my first plug. And the next one is called Hit the Road, Jack. It's by Jackie Furno. And she spent um, seven years on a Royal Enfield. Now, I loved this book because it's a magic story of the thought process. Let's have a go and see what happens. And I really like that. It's a story of all of the ups and downs that happen when you um, have that sort of attitude for your journey. It's wonderfully honest. It's funny. Um, and it's absolutely inspirational. It's a book that, um, yeah, um, you'll be thinking, wow, what a great idea. And Jackie doing this? Interesting. Hmm. There actually isn't a reason why I couldn't um, at some time. And of course, my third plug is my books. Please buy my books and audiobooks, Into Africa, Under Asian Skies, Distant Suns and Tortillas, Totems. And the best place to get them internationally is from um, the Book Depository. And they do free worldwide delivery. And of course, the four audiobooks, which are available on Audible on iTunes. And I have to say, I'm blown away by um, the reviews that we're getting on those. So thanks very much, everybody. And um, yeah, okay, enough rattle from me. Buy my books. No, I didn't say that. 
Well, that's great. And yes, another Christmas gift idea. I mean, you could really load up with books this way. And what better way to spend a winter if you're in North America than sitting and reading? By the way, we had Jackie Furno on the show. I think we had her on a couple of times, but we did um, we did a nice piece uh, with her about that book. So I'll have to put that link in the show notes as well. Yeah, she tells a great story. Yes, yes, definitely. Um, I guess that wraps it up then. So we're... Uh, <laughs> I just wait if you you're just cruel, say Jim, you're cruel. <laughs> Come on, Graham, what have you got? Um, if only you had your webcam on, <laughs> you could see the look you were getting. <laughs> um, um, the reason we're all recording this show uh, a day earlier than we normally would, uh, that's because of me, because tomorrow, uh, when we would be recording, I'm flying back to the UK to go to the studio to record my second audiobook, Eureka. And nice. loads of people ask when you're going to do it, when you're going to do it. Well, the answer is it starts tomorrow and it will be out in time for Christmas, not on Audible and iTunes. That won't be available until next year sometime. But what I've done, I've listened to the market research last year, having bought In Search of Greener Grass out on a beautiful gatefold sleeve with disc replica discs. Um and everybody said, oh, I haven't actually got a disc player anymore. Apples don't have them or something. So this time it's coming on a little USB flash drive, which isn't nearly as beautiful to look at or as comprehensive or have photographs or anything, but far more practical and a bit cheaper to post out as well. So you can go through the link, um, which uh, will be on the uh, raw website, which will take you to my website and you can pre-order it, save a lot of money and get it before Christmas, the audible version of the talking book version of Eureka. And I've just been reading through it. I've got the whole script because reading a script of the book is very different to actually reading a book. So, uh, and there's loads of bits I've forgotten and uh, I've really enjoyed reading it again. So hopefully reading it out loud next week uh, will be just as enjoyable. Yeah, so that's my plug, Eureka the audio book, now available for pre-order. What a cool. brilliant idea putting it on the memory sticks. Fantastic. Yeah. Why didn't I think of that? I think it's great when when a uh, an author reads their own book and actually likes it. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's, I was reading it last night. <laughs> we were all sitting around last night watching, looking at it, and we just got it printed out because um, every page has to end on a full stop so that they can pause the microphone when you turn the page. And I was just reading through it. I was on all fours on the floor with the pages all in front of me. And I was just reading randomly through a bit. And I said, my God, I'm a good writer. <laughs> but, and incidentally, because I do the three-item deal, you get a free pannier box set. So you can order that with, say, a T-shirt and another audio book or a book and any three items. And then you get the pannier box set as well. So uh, that the uh, audio book still is part of that deal. But check it all out on the website and it all makes sense. Very cool. So a pre-order, that's, that's pre-ordering the book. And, and you say it's going to be out and shipped for Christmas. Yeah, definitely. Because, um, yeah. Yeah, almost definitely. Probably. I think it will. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> what do you do for um for shipping this uh the the little USB stick? Does that, that go well, in a padded envelope or something? Yeah, I uh, did a little bit of research and you can get little USB stick envelopes, uh, which are nice and small. Uh the trick's gonna be writing the address on it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you use a printer and you, I mean instead of making your mum write all these addresses out, just use a printer, print it off in really tiny. Yeah, I, yeah, I don't know how to do that, but we'll look into it. <laughs> but, but, you know, your mum's got to do it, Graham. I mean, it's it's that's the personal touch, isn't it? 
handwritten, handwritten by the dispatch. By your mum. Yes, that's very cool. <laughs> I know it's not quite, it's not the same, but I still handwrite mine because I think it's nicer. And most of them actually make it to people. Come on, I thought I was going to get a rude comment then. <laughs> I was waiting for Graham to say polite. something, but. <laughs> well, I guess that uh, that wraps it up. Oh, what? No, 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 not quite, not quite, Jim, not quite. What do you got? Now, do, you, do you guys know that, um, you know what it's like when you, someone um, you know gets three Olympic medals and oh, stuff like right. that? Wow. <laughs> what? I'm living, in, I'm living in a household where my wife has won three first prize blue ribbons at the Castlemaine show. Wow. And do you think we ever hear the end of it? Wow. Very <laughs> <No>. nice. <laughs> what, what were the ribbons for? The ribbons were for um, her tomato relish, which is absolutely magnificent. Uh, one was for a cross-stitch where she makes beautiful um, Christmas stockings for, for little babies um, with beautiful um, motifs on them with their own personal name. And the other one was for a quilt. She did some quilting, first quilt. So she's very, very talented, my girl. So there you go. I don't know where she finds the time for all this. I'm impressed. <laughs> Either does she. <laughs> right, so, so if somebody orders the three books, do they get the tomato relish? Oh, it's only There's an idea. Unless they can't. And I'm, I'm not going to give them the recipe either because I'd like to go for first prize again next year. Ah, it's all in the recipe. <laughs> of course. Okay, well, I think that's it. I think we're wrapping it up, aren't we, for November 2018. Thanks, everyone. Sounds good. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. It's been great. Cheers, guys. Wait, 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 wait. We need just like a little bit more enthusiasm here, folks. Like, you know, that was just like, it was dead. It's November 2018. Wrapping it up. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we're popping balloons here. Well, that wraps things up for this month's ARR Raw. Thanks to my co-host, Sam Manacom, who lives in the UK, has four books and audiobooks to follow his eight-year motorcycle journey around the world. Drop by his website, www.sam-manicom.com. Shirley Hardy Ricks and Brian Ricks are from Australia. They also have books published about their motorcycle travels. You can buy them anywhere you get e-books or from their website, www.aussiesoverland.com.au. Graham Field lives in Bulgaria and is the author of both books and audiobooks that chronicle some of his journeys, as well, Graham's got t-shirts and his famous box set find out more www.gramfield.co.uk and of course grant johnson is from horizons unlimited which is literally the hub for the adventure motorcycling community horizons unlimited has tons of up-to-date travel information as well as a huge forum connecting travelers from around the world they also put on the hub meets around the world you can see a list of all the meets they do at www.horizonsunlimited.com and we would love your support for raw and for adventure rider radio the more listener support we get the less we need to depend on advertising so drop by our website and consider becoming part of our patreon team www.adventureriderradio.com just click on the support button special thanks to our producer elizabeth martin my name's jim martin thank you for listening see you next month